Good morning. As we come together this morning, I was burdened uh, just with the number of persons that I know are out sick. I think I, at least with families included, I've counted over 20 persons who are sick or allergies or hurting in some different way and just thinking about our body. And I just encourage you as we talk about being the hands and feet and ministering to one another to uh, especially those that you recognize are missing to take the opportunity to reach out to see how you might serve them how you might uh, encourage them in uh, in this time I was also burdened this morning as I um, read uh, of what's taking place in Afghanistan from a very different perspective than what the news is covering um, I heard through just different missionary friends that I have that um, what you may not have realized is amidst everything else going on the past 10 to 15 years has had a tremendous church planting effort going on in the Middle East, in Afghanistan and other places. And many, as the Taliban is retaking Afghanistan, uh, those networks received letters this morning saying that uh, we know who you are and we know what you're doing. And so with the ominous threat of what is coming for them. And so the uh, response of those church leaders is we're going nowhere. There's so little that uh, we really know of that suffering, that hardship. Sure, we have struggles, we have difficulties, we have sickness, we have things that go on in our lives, but we know so little. So I'm gonna take some time this morning to just begin in prayer as we pray. Sorry, I didn't realize it was going to be this, this emotional, but it has burned my heart. So, uh, but I want to take time to pray for them this morning. The Lord would encourage them, that he would strengthen them. That as uh, Justin Martyr said that the, uh, the blood of the martyrs is uh, waters the seed of the church. And so as different types of fates await them in the coming days, pray that they would be on your hearts and on your minds. Just also, we're gonna take time to pray for just our own family who are suffering in very different ways, but just are absent this morning. So join me in praying as we begin this morning. Father, we do pray for our brothers and sisters across this world. Pray for those especially who are existing under the threat of imminent death, persecution, and suffering. Lord, I pray that you would be their rock, that you would be their hope, that you would be their comfort. Lord, I pray that you would allow your word and their ministry to go forth boldly during this time. As much as I would love to see a revival in this nation, I pray for a revival in those places where hearts would be turned to you, where the hope that goes far beyond this life that shines through those who, in the midst of suffering and persecution and death, do not waver, that as others see that, they'll be drawn to you. Pray for the families, pray for the children. Pray for those who will be affected. 
Father, you love them, you care for them more than we ever could. Father, we pray for those in our own body who are not with us this morning, for those who are sick, for those who, those who are even here who are hurting. But we just pray that you would heal them. Pray for uh, the passing of Jonna. Pray for Tim. Just that you would encourage him, that you would be his delight, that you would be his portion, his inheritance, his hope. Father, that as we look to others, as we endure these difficulties in this life, that we set our focus, we set our mind on what is to come. We will be reminded through all of this that this world is not what we live for. This world is not what we long for. This world is not where we are to make our forever home. That this life is merely preparation for the life to come. As we open up your word this morning, as we turn our attention to the study of Haggai, Lord, it's fitting that we come to a text that offers that hope and that encouragement to a people who were wavering, who were faltering in their faith. May we look to that, may we look to what we see in the book of Haggai this morning as a way of encouraging us, of helping to motivate us in our prayers, in our thoughts, and in our actions. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Perhaps even more so in light of what I we've just observed and just we're praying for, if I were to ask you, what brings you encouragement, comfort, and hope as a Christian, how would you answer? What would you say? If I were to ask you what excites you, what motivates you, what propels you toward obedience as a disciple of Jesus Christ, how would you answer that? Last week, we saw the comfort God brought to post-exilic Israel as their faith began to falter, that comfort was found in remembering and recognizing the nearness of God. But that was only the first half of the message. This week we're going to observe as God continues to motivate them toward obedience by giving them a theological framework and an eschatological, that is a future hope, that stimulate them toward obedience and strengthen them for what lies ahead. The same eschatological or future hope should serve to encourage us as we are despairing, as we are downcast, if we should endure persecution, to help us in our resolve toward obedience by providing us with the same hope for the future. So if you haven't already opened there, open to the book of Haggai, chapter 2, and we're going to continue as we look at this message, the, one of the next to last messages that Haggai brings to the people of Israel, this post-exilic Israel, beginning in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, and actually, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to back up to verse 1, because that's the beginning of this message. Our study will focus on verses 6 through 9, but let's back up to verse 1. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem like nothing in comparison? But now, take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And work, 
For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made to you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give you peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Of hosts. As we seek to understand and apply the text this morning, we need to start with understanding really what it's even saying. Before we can even begin to get to the application, we need to say what is going on? Why now in Israel's history, why now in what is going on in this message that he's delivering, is God delivering this? And what does this even mean? What does it relate to? How is this going to help them? So what we're going to do is first work to interpret and understand the different elements of this passage before we begin to conclude by asking, how does this meaning apply to us today? We see in verses 6 through 7 here, the shaking of the nations. In verses 6 through 7, God points to a future time that involves the shaking of the heavens and the earth and the nations in verses 6 through 7. We also note that as you look there, that this shaking will be similar to shaking that has occurred previously. In other words, there is a precedence for this shaking. It is not something brand new. Yes, it will happen again. It will be somewhat different, but there is a precedence. There is a history. There is some other shaking that we can look to to understand what this shaking will be. We also note that it's future, it's in a little while, so it is yet to come. The shaking of creation is a common theme throughout the Old Testament. It's often found in contexts associated with the Lord's presence when he comes near. It's often found in contexts associated with the Lord's presence in times of battle, when he would work on behalf of Israel to deliver them or against the adversaries of God's people. For example, we read in Exodus of God's presence when meeting with his people whom he had delivered from Egypt. When he desired to draw near to them, when he was going to bring his presence to them, he decided to do it with shock and awe. He met them at Mount Sinai. It shook. It trembled. It was covered in great smoke. The people were terrified by the shaking as God's presence drew near. In Exodus 19.18, now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. In Psalm 68, David notes the presence of God with Israel when he says, O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked. The heavens also dropped with rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. In regard to seeing the presence of God in battle on behalf of his people, we read in Deborah, 
And Barak's song from Judges 5, 4 through 5, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Eden, the earth quaked, the heavens also dripped, even the clouds dripped water, the mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord, this Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. The shaking of creation then is here associated with the presence of God. That's what the historical shaking refers to. At times it refers to judgment of God against persons and nations that oppose him, that oppose his will, and that oppose his people. Now Haggai's description is a little bit different. He doesn't just say shaking in general. It's not Mount Sinai that is shaking. He says it is the heavens and the earth that are shaking. This is a figure of speech. It's called a merism. It's a way of referring to the totality of something by describing its extremes or two opposite ends. For example, if you're looking for something, you would say, I, I searched high, I searched low, I searched every nook and cranny. It's a way of search, saying I searched everywhere I could look, everywhere in between. I searched high, low, everywhere in between. So when he refers to the heavens and the earth, he means all of the cosmos, from the highest of the heights to the depths of the sea. Everything and everything in between shakes at the presence of God, or will shake in this text, at the presence of God. But then Haggai narrows the focus even further. He starts from far off with all of the cosmos, and then he refers to the sea and dry land, another merism, for everything that is now on the earth. When it relates to the presence of God, you can almost picture, as he begins to draw nearer and nearer to this earth, the shaking intensifies. It begins with all of the cosmos. Now it is all of the earth. And ultimately, we see the purpose for which the shaking has begun when that final object comes into view, and that is who? The nations. The nations are the focus. That is the aim here. And it is specifically to rebuke and humble the nations and bring them into subjection. Now, before we look at this section further, I want us to come back up for air for a second. And survey again the context of Haggai 2, real briefly. Haggai 2, what is Haggai, why is Haggai delivering this message? We know in chapter 1 that the people had, for the past 16 to 17 years, lapsed in their spiritual commitment. They had been stealing from God's resources. They had been stealing from God, all the while saying, well, God's still pleased with us, because we're Still, his people, he'll still bless us. Haggai showed up to rebuke them for this, to say, no, the famine that you've had, the drought that you've had, all of these things are because you have not done what you were told to do, which is rebuild my temple. And yet you've made your own houses luxurious. All the while, you're suffering because of your sin. And so he calls them to repentance. And unique among the prophets, the people respond to the message of Haggai. As the Spirit of the Lord stirs their hearts and they Say, you're right, just like their hearts were stirred when they were brought out of Babylon. At Cyrus's decree, they returned to the land here again, 16 to 17 years later. The Lord stirs their heart through the preaching of his word through Haggai the prophet. We're now a couple months later. And as the reality sets in, as they see the task in front of them, as the surrounding nations who scared them off from the building after it had first started, as they get wind and hear of what is taking place, and the threats begin to mount, the people begin to shake. Their confidence begins to falter. 
And so God, understanding this, recognizing this, as a loving father, delivers another message through Haggai the prophet. And so it is to a people whose faith is faltering yet again, though they have not lapsed, that this message comes. Post-exilic Israel is in the beginning of rebuilding a temple in a city that is in rubble with no city walls or gates. They are the remnant of a once great and mighty nation. And as they look at this temple, as they look at what they're building, it doesn't even begin to compare with what existed before. The task seems monumental. The, the attacks of the nations that are lining up that we, you read about when Nehemiah came to rebuild the walls, how they had to work with arms and hands because of the threats of the surrounding nations. They're imminent. And so as we look at what the Lord is saying through Haggai, we can observe that God is teaching Israel two important lessons. And we'll look at the context of the, the message itself, but there's two big picture lessons that are being taught here. First, as we look at this text, as we look at what God is going to do, we are reminded that all of this work, all that they are to do, has nothing to do with them. It is all about God and his glory. It's not Israel's glory. It's not Israel's that is the concern. It's God's glory. And we are reminded that he cares far more for his glory and being sanctified among the nations than they ever will. Yes, they are to obey, but God being glorified and how the nations perceive them are something he will take care of. I think so often we are concerned about how others will perceive God. We so often soft pedal the truth. We hedge the gospel because it might offend. It might hurt somebody's feelings or their sensitivities. We think that if we declare the truth about God in love, that Pearsons will somehow think less of God. We need to be reminded this is not our concern. God will deal with person's perception. Our only responsibility is to obey and be faithful, and that's what Israel needed to be reminded of. Not fear what man may think about us or God because of our obedience. We just need to ensure we are truly obedient and faithful. Secondly, God is letting Israel know that what is transpiring is far outside their comprehension. It is far outside of their control. It extends into the future. There is much more going on than they know or understand. And we need to be reminded of that pretty often. Because we begin to think we, even though we, we don't consciously think this, we subconsciously think that we have the full perspective. That's when we begin to fret and become anxious because we try to control what's going on. There is much more going on here than Israel knows or understands. And through Haggai, God condescends to provide a glimpse into what he plans for the future in order to encourage and strengthen the theological fabric of post-exilic Israel. To motivate them in their current obedience and faithfulness and to strengthen them for the task at hand. That's why this message is being delivered. So let's dive back in to the interpretation and understanding of the shaking of the nations. And to do that, I want you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2, we read that God has a plan for the nations and will ultimately bring all nations into subjection to him. Notice especially verse 12 as we read, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? 
The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have instilled my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. And you will break them with a rod of iron and shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. God has and is working out a plan for all the nations. And the warning is for them all to worship him, to turn to him, to repent before him. Isaiah says in Isaiah 45, 23 through 24, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. Paul says in Romans 14, 11, for as it is written, as I say, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. Paul again says in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, For this reason also God highly exalted him, that is Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That reference to under the earth means Every person who has ever lived on this earth who has passed away and has been buried and returned to dust will be raised again to bow their knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, either in praise and in worship with God as Father or God as Judge. So when will this humbling of all peoples and nations take place? Well, it's future when Haggai spoke these words. It was future when Paul wrote and as we have not seen yet the submission of the nations, it's still future for us as well. But we can be a little bit more specific. While we still don't know the future date and we'll never be able to plug a date into it, there's still a little bit more specificity we can have about this future time. Ezekiel 38 through 39 describes a coming day. And go ahead and turn to Ezekiel 38 if you would. Ezekiel 38, down in verse 18, throughout 38 and 39, it describes a coming day when the nations will war against God. And here in Ezekiel 38, 18 through 23, we see that same language of earthquakes and shaking at God's presence, with, connected with the presence of God and the submission of the peoples. In verse 18, it says, It will come about on that day when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger. And in my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down, the steep pathways will collapse, every wall will fall to the ground. 
I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him. And I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. And then in verse 23, I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. This is a reference to the day of the Lord. A similar description of this future time is described throughout Revelation. You're welcome to turn there, but in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, we read, similar to the language of what we just read, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, and even in the New Testament, although specifically in Revelation, we read of this coming day of the Lord. And the language and the imagery and the figures of speech are all very, very similar as it describes the shaking, the upturning, the upheaval of this entire world as God's presence draws near. And it's at that time that every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and will glorify the Father. That's the meaning of the shaking of the heavens and the earth here. It was an eschatological, that is a future promise of the coming day of the Lord that even now we anticipate when every knee will bow and worship God. But what about the reference to the wealth of the nations? How does that fit in? In verse 8. Well, the reference to the wealth of the nations is a reference to the future gifts that the nations of the earth will bring to the Lord in Jerusalem. After the shaking has subsided of the heavens and the earth, when Christ is reigning on the throne and the glory of God fills the temple, you can turn, if you would like, to the book of Isaiah in chapter 60. In Isaiah 60, we read, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you, young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense. They will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. All the rocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebioth will minister to you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar, and I shall glorify my glorious house. 
You can read in Isaiah 66 and elsewhere of the nations coming and bringing offerings and gifts to the Lord. After the shaking of the heavens and the earth, after the nations have been subjected, once every knee has been made to bow before God, they will recognize His greatness and begin bringing regular gifts and treasures to the Lord. Seated in Jerusalem, filling the city and the temple with their treasures. This is just a continuation. This reference to the silver and the gold or mine is a reference to that coming day after the shaking. As all of the treasures of the earth begin to fill Jerusalem. It's just a small expression of both thankfulness and worship to God and His, who He is. And what about the filling of the temple with His glory? Well, whereas Ezekiel 38 and 39 describe the disciplining and the humbling of the nations, Ezekiel 40 through 48, God describes a future time after the shaking of the heavens and the earth, after that day of the Lord, when this future kingdom will be established, and specifically the temple within Jerusalem. And that temple will welcome the nations as they bring their gifts and their offerings to worship the Lord and at the center of Jerusalem will be the temple. And Ezekiel tells us that his glory will fill the temple like never before. And he will be sanctified and made holy among the nations. In Ezekiel 43 verses 4 through 5 we read, And the glory of the Lord came into the house, that is the temple, the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house or filled the temple. At the end of Ezekiel, God provides Ezekiel a vision of this future temple after the humbling of all the nations. And it is that temple and that glory that the Lord is describing. And Haggai, knowing these prophecies, receiving this word from the Lord, comforts post-exilic Israel by pointing to that future temple where the glory of the Lord will dwell. And all of these things, the upheaval, the earthquakes, the shaking of the nations, and then the beginning of the gifts being brought and the glory of the Lord settling in the temple, all of this results in peace throughout Israel. A peace that they've longed for. A peace and a rest that have been longed for since the fall. It was Lamech, Noah's father, who said, perhaps it is this one, Noah, who will give us rest, and named him Noah, or Noach, because this means rest. So we can understand Haggai 2, at least conceptually. It refers to a future time. It refers to the future day of the Lord. It refers to the reigning and the kingdom that follows that time, the glory of the Lord filling his temple. It refers to all of these things. So we can understand that, at least at a basic level right now. There's a lot more to understand within those things. Even if we don't understand them perfectly. But once we understand that, having interpreted it thus far, the question really becomes, how did this reminder of the future promises of God for Israel, the future plans for humbling the nations, the day of the Lord, for having his glory return to Jerusalem and giving them peace, how did this impact them? And why did God give Haggai this message at this time to post-exilic Israel? How specifically did it help them? 
How was it that this message encouraged them, comforted them, strengthened them for the task of rebuilding a pitifully small temple? Well, to answer that question, we need to again note the context. Israel is faltering in her renewed commitment to God and in her obedience. She needs the encouragement. She needs the motivation. And we know God doesn't speak something by accident. He doesn't waste his words. So these are intended to do just that. The first part of this message that we looked at last week included that comforting reminder that God is near and keeps his promises. And so the second half now focuses upon some of his future promises. And the reminder that the outcome belongs to the Lord. Here they are worried about the outcome. Worried about what the temple's going to look like. Worried about whether they'll be able to complete it. Worried about whether the other nations will hurt them. Worried about whether they'll have enough. So this reminder is intimately tied to two things. Comfort and encouragement that we looked at last week. But exhortation to faithfulness and obedience. Being reminded that the outcome belongs to the Lord. It's already been established, and he keeps his promises. This message was intended to help Israel to gird up the loins, to strengthen the people, and encourage them in the work of rebuilding the temple and following through in their obedience to the Lord. So it leads me to ask, as they were reminded that the outcome belongs to the Lord, so they don't need to worry, as they're reminded that God keeps his promises, We can recognize all these things, but how does this impact our lives as Gentiles living 2,500 years later who are not rebuilding a temple in the midst of a city that's been destroyed by the Babylonians? Well, to answer that question, I want you to turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 follows a remarkably similar pattern to the book of Haggai. It begins with a warning and discussion of the discipline of the Lord, much like what we have seen about God's disciplining of Israel, post-exilic Israel, for her sin and warning her to consider her ways throughout chapter 1 and highlighting the discipline of the Lord in drawing her back. Remember, it's whom the Lord loves he disciplines. That section, that first section of Hebrews even ends with the encouragement to strengthen the hands that are feeble and weak. Those who are wavering in their commitment and obedience. Again, much like Haggai was commissioned to do for Israel. And then in the second half, the writer of Hebrews moves into a discussion of the presence of the Lord. The heavenly Jerusalem and to God dwelling with his people. Then at the end of Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 25, he even quotes from Haggai. He quotes specifically in verse 26, making allusion there and reference. But beginning in verse 25, we read, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on this earth, how much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven? And his voice shook the earth then. And if you had looked back several verses in Hebrews 12 down to verses 18 through 24, you'd be reminded this is speaking to that shaking that we've already discussed at Mount Sinai. And if his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. 
Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Look closely at verse 28 again. Because it provides us with the answer of how Israel was to respond and how we are to respond in light of what we see this morning. Because of these great promises, because as children of God we are partakers with Christ, we should respond in gratitude. Romans 8 makes it clear that we are children of God, fellow heirs with Christ Jesus, having been adopted into the family of God. In Romans 9 through 11, we learn that all believers in God have been grafted into the true believing Israel, and as such, we will be partakers and benefactors of many of the promises to Israel. This future hope should lift us from our present situation. God has wired us to work that way, that hope encourages us, hope motivates us. Looking to the future excites us. It gets us up in the morning. It helps us persevere through difficult times. We will endure all sorts of things if we have hope of something to come. Why else would a mother have more than one child after going through the pain of childbirth? Why else would you work and labor day in and day out if it wasn't for the hope and the reward of a paycheck? Why else would you study hours on end if it wasn't for the hope of graduation? Why else would you endure hours and hours on a road trip in an uncomfortable car if it wasn't for the hope of vacation? When you read stories of Holocaust survivors, prisoners of war, it was hope that enabled them to endure. We are wired for hope, every one of us. And these promises that we've only briefly touched on this morning are intended to fan the flames of that future hope in the coming return of Christ and the kingdom of God. To long for it, to look forward to it, to understand that peace will come, not on this earth, not at this time, but in that future day to come. And so we endure today looking forward to that time. So what do we do while we await the culmination of this hope? Well, we do what he, the writer of Hebrews said at the beginning of Hebrews 12, where he said, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The reminder this morning, as we look at Israel, Israel is being reminded to look to the future promises of God Cast your burdens and your anxieties on him, knowing that it is the Lord who is at work for his goodwill and his good pleasure. You just be obedient and faithful with what's in front of you. God will take care of the rest. He's already planned not just your life, but the end of the ages. So no matter how hard, how difficult, how discouraging, how depressed you are, take hope. And so we're reminded to look to the future promises of God as that motivation for enduring present circumstances and obeying with gratitude. Okay, well, great, but what does that look like? Well, Haggai goes on to answer that a little bit more next week, but for now, we can start by answering that question by reminding ourselves of what Paul said in Romans 12, 1 through 2. We said, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your logical, your reasonable act 
of worship or service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, that which is acceptable, that which is perfect. So we're to present our bodies to God as a living and holy sacrifice, okay? What does that mean? It's still a little abstract. So let's break it down a bit further. When you offer a sacrifice, what are you doing? You're giving it up. It's no longer yours. That means when you respond in gratitude to God and offer yourself as a living sacrifice, you are putting something to death. You're giving it up. You're putting something to death. But we're to be living sacrifices. So it's not ourselves we're putting to death. So what are we putting to death? We are putting to death our wants, our wills, and our desires and saying that we want to submit what we wish for, what we desire, what we long for to God. In other words, in everything, we want to begin to ask, does this please God? Because that's what God cared about with Israel and post-exilic Israel. It was, are you pleasing me? The writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, makes it abundantly clear that there is joy to be found in this life. It is not permanent joy. It is not the joy that we long for in the life after the sun. But the joy that we long for, there is joy that can be found in this life. But that joy is found when you please the Lord. So can you honestly say that? Can you say that you have submitted your will to God? Your ambitions, your goals, your desires, are you certain that they are submitted to God's will? Well, you may say God is inaudibly speaking to me, so how can I know whether or not they are according to his will? That's an excellent question. And the second half of Romans 12, 1 through 2, answers that. Where it says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So start by looking at those things you desire, those things you wish for, those things you pursue, that you prioritize, and here are some questions to begin asking. Are those things the world longs for? How is it that, how is what I want any different than what the world wants? How does what I want, what I prioritize, how does it demonstrate God's holiness, his faithfulness, and his goodness? Does what I want make me more holy, more like God? Does my desire for this thing or that thing incline me toward holiness or sinfulness? Does it incline me towards obedience or disobedience? Are the things I pursue true, lovely, pure, and good? Would God be honored with how I spend my time, my resources, what I pursue? If God were to return, would he be happy with what I am doing? Would he say, well done, good and faithful servant? How is God's kingdom impacted by what I love, what I pursue, and what I delight in? Do the things I do, the things I desire, help or hurt my ability to proclaim the gospel? These questions and questions like these will help you to answer the question of whether or not you are walking in the will of God. And the last thing I want to say goes back to Hebrews 12, 25. There's a warning here. 
There's a stern warning, a sobering warning for those who have not yet bowed their knee to Christ. It warns you to pay attention while you are still on this earth. So that the day of judgment, you do not have to face God as judge, but as father. Because if you face him as judge, you will tremble as the nations before him, and your end will be hell. There's no way to mince those words. Yet God does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And by his grace, he has allowed you to hear this message, which means he longs for you to know him and longs for you to be his child. So don't delay another moment. You will bow your knee before God. Every single person on this earth at Christ's return or those who have died and passed away will be resurrected to bow their knee before God. You don't escape that conclusion. The question is whether you will bow out of love and gratitude or out of fear heading to a discipline and judgment. There's a prayer from the Valley of Vision called a disciple's renewal. So we've looked at these past couple of weeks at the message of the Lord through Haggai to renew and strengthen the faith in the hearts of Israel and have looked at how we might learn from and apply this to our lives. I thought this prayer would be a fitting way to close this morning. It goes like this, Oh, my Savior, help me. I am so slow to learn, so prone to forget, so weak to climb. I'm in the foothills when I should be on the heights. I'm pained by my graceless heart, my prayerless days, my poverty of love, my sloth in the heavenly race, my solid conscience, my wasted hours, my unspent opportunities. I am blind while light shines around me. Take the scales from my eyes. Grind to dust the evil heart of unbelief. Make it my chiefest joy to study thee, to meditate upon thee, to gaze on thee, to sit like Mary at thy feet, to lean like John on thy breast, to appeal like Peter to thy love, to count like Paul all things dung. Give me increase in progress and grace so that there may be more decision in my character, more vigor in my purposes, more elevation in my life, more fervor in my devotion, more constancy in my zeal. As I have a position in the world, keep me from making the world my position. May I never seek in the creature what can only be found in the Creator. Let not faith cease from seeking thee until it vanishes into sight. Ride forth in me, thou King of kings and Lord of lords, that I may live victoriously and in victory attain my end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder from Haggai this morning. Father, may the reminder of your future plans, of your future kingdom, and the fact that you are in control of all things, bring us peace and comfort in this life. We thank you for reminders like these. May we be faithful in light of these things, to live in obedience, to seek the joy that can be found in this earth because it's found in obeying you. May we live the most joy-filled lives we can on this earth as we seek and we pursue you, pursue your will, putting to death our desires. Father, help us to rightly praise you, to rightly worship you, and to be lights that shine for you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.